And what I want you to do now is to take out your Bibles and please turn in them in the New Testament to the book of 2 Corinthians and chapter number 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under a chair in front of you and you can take that Bible out and in the back section turn to page 142 and you will be at 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. It is possible at times to hear a concept clearly communicated and yet somehow miss the real significance. And one great illustration of that would be the story of a young boy named Connor. And Connor went to his very first wedding. And at that same wedding was his little cousin, was his first wedding also, and his little cousin, the cousin's father, had divorced and remarried. So after these two boys who've never been to a wedding before, they got together afterwards, and Connor's cousin said to him, Connor, how many women can a man marry? And Connor immediately said to him, 16. And his little cousin said to him, well, where did you get that? And Connor said to him, weren't you listening during the wedding ceremony? Didn't you hear what the pastor said? All you had to do was add it up. He said, four better, four worse, four richer, four poor. Sixteen. So sometimes you can hear a concept clearly communicated and yet miss the real significance of it. And I think in the evangelical Christian community, something very similar has happened over the years. The Bible talks about rewards. The Bible talks about the loss of rewards. The Bible talks about how we are going to undergo a personal evaluation by the Savior, yet somehow <laughs> the idea has floated in the Christian community that we're all going to be the same in heaven and that the choices we make after we come to Christ and we trust in Christ as Savior really will have no effect on eternity. Last week we started a series called Keeping Your Eye on Eternity. And by the way, if you missed last week's message, I would encourage you to either go to our website at wildwoodchurch.org and you can, can stream it or download it there or you can go to the Light Source bookstore and pick up a copy because every message we're going to give in this series is built on the one previous. But last week we talked about how rewards are real. Jesus said so and Paul said so. We talked about how rewards can be lost and we talked about how reality is an evaluation is coming for every believer in Jesus Christ. And if you have your Bible open to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we, we read through verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And I want to take a moment before we even get into the material for this morning and just to point out that there are two future judgment events that the Bible talks about. And attendance is required at one or the other. And the first future judgment event is the great white throne judgment. Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 to 15 talks about that. And at the great white throne judgment, all unbelievers will appear. And the focus of that judgment is eternal punishment. 
But the second future judgment event is the judgment seat of Christ. And we see that talked about in 2 Corinthians 5, 10. And at the judgment seat of Christ, all believers will appear. And the focus of the judgment seat of Christ is eternal reward. And so you just have two future judgment events, and attendance is required at one or the other. All the unbelievers will be at the great white throne. All the believing community will be at the judgment seat of Christ. Now here's what is interesting to me, and when we did a series of messages on heaven and hell, we pointed this out, and that is that hell is not going to be the same for all unbelievers. And I just want to prove that point for a moment. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. We're going to have really a long introduction today. Matthew chapter 11, because Jesus pointed this out in Matthew 11. If you look at Matthew 11 and verse 20, Jesus was denouncing the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed. They saw more of the miracles of Christ than others, and they did not repent. And so he says to them, verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which had been judged by God previously, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And then he makes this statement, verse 22. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment, that future judgment, than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which had occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. See what's being said here at the great white throne judgment? Hell is, it's not going to be the same for all unbelievers. In Mark chapter 12 and verse 40, Jesus says there that hypocrites will receive greater condemnation at the future judgment. And if you go to that Revelation chapter 20 passage where it talks about the great white throne judgment, two times it says there that the people at the great white throne are going to be judged by their deeds. It's not the same for all unbelievers in hell. And also, life in the kingdom is not going to be the same for all believers as we've already seen last week, some are going to receive reward. Some are going to experience loss of reward. But reality is, an evaluation is coming. And while we looked at a lot of passages last week, this concept is sprinkled throughout the New Testament. And I just want to show you one other passage where it appears, and that is James chapter 3. And I want you to notice what it says in verse 1. Reality is an evaluation is coming. And James writes to the believers in, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brothers, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. He's really saying here that when you come to the judgment seat of Christ, if someone is a teacher, they're going to be placed under a stricter set of evaluations than those who were not. And that's one of the reasons why it's a very serious thing to consider to be a teacher of truth. 
I mean, think about it. You know, I'm standing up here in front of several hundreds of people, and I teach certain things. We have recordings of my messages that get passed around. They're on the web. I don't even know where they're going all over the world. And what it's really saying is there's some responsibility with that privilege. In fact, you know, if you've been around Wildwood, that our messages are translated into Latvian and rebroadcast throughout the entire nation of Latvia. And there's responsibility behind that. There's an evaluation coming, and I'm going to have to answer to how I was accurate with the Word of God as I taught through those things. So the reality is an evaluation is coming, and I'm going to face one, and you are going to face one. Now, the second part of reality we saw last time, and again, this is a long introduction, is that God will reward faithfulness. And we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, where it says, one thing is required of stewards, and that is that a steward be faithful. So an evaluation is coming, and God will reward faithfulness. See, as believers in Jesus Christ, as his followers, we've all been adopted into the family of God. We've all been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We all, if we trust in Christ as Savior, have our eternal home guaranteed. But we will not have equal reward and equal responsibility in the millennial kingdom, nor even in the eternal ages to follow. Now, as we ended last time, I said this. These truths are both challenging and encouraging. We're going to see that today. I want to tell you a story about a man named Dennis Johnson. And Dennis Johnson had a successful business and two sons who worked with him in the business. His first son, Matthew, was a diligent worker who was never late for work. Matthew readily did what he was asked to do and was even willing to take on some other jobs that others were unwilling to do, including staying overtime if necessary. Matthew would often eat lunch with his dad and would ask questions about the business. The frequent lunches helped Matthew to better understand both his father and his father's business. The second son, William, was more of a free spirit. William's idea of being on time to work was anywhere close to an hour after work started. William was fairly dependable, but he would often make mistakes, partly because he was unfamiliar with the procedure of the business, and partly because his mind was often focused elsewhere. When lunch arrived every day, William was primed for long lunches and video games. Often, William viewed his father's guidelines as somewhat silly and restrictive. Now, Dennis Johnson loved both of his sons dearly. They both would always be his sons, valuable members of the family. When Mr. Johnson got ready to retire, which son did he choose to put in charge of his business? Including some of those extra perks that came with that responsibility. Well, if we had to answer that question, we would say, you know, it doesn't exactly take a Ph.D. in human behavior or someone with an MBA to figure out which son he would put in charge at all. The second son, Dennis, lacked focus, was undisciplined, and had divided loyalties. The first son, Matthew, had been focused, diligent, and faithful. 
And it's important that we understand that our Heavenly Father loves His children equally. And each one of them are valuable members of God's family. When it comes to rewarding His children, He will deal with each one of us fairly. And those who have sought to know Him well and have faithfully carried on His business in this world will be rewarded in a greater way than other children who have been more self-focused and unfaithful. Some children will receive greater reward. Others will experience less reward than the Father desired to give. It has nothing to do with the Father's love. It has everything to do with the child's faithfulness. I mean, I find it interesting that, that people would really believe that once we're in the family of God, it would make no difference how we choose to live our life. I mean, do people really believe that? That we are going to be rewarded identically whether or not we choose to walk worthy after we've come to know Christ? I mean, do we really believe it's going to make no difference whether I choose to have an unforgiving spirit and embracing resentment in my life or if I choose to have a forgiving spirit and say, I'm going to forgive others the way Christ forgave me? Do we really think it would make no difference whether I choose to uh, you know, run people down and, and criticize them all the time, which the Bible calls slander, or whether I would choose to encourage people? Do we really think it, it makes no difference? For example, even as a believer in Jesus Christ, if I choose to pilfer or embezzle money, like a pastor I know who stole more than $75,000, this is a leading evangelical church in a neighboring state, more than $75,000 he took from the church. Does it make no difference if you do that or if you are a pastor maybe labors many years with a small salary? Does that make no difference between those two? What if we choose as a believer in Jesus Christ to practice sexual impurity outside of a marriage relationship? What if, what if, uh, what if we're choosing to get high on a regular basis? Does that make no difference? What if we, uh, we have a lack of connection with other believers? We're just not even involved with other believers. Or would it make a difference if we're actively serving Christ and, and serving other people? And the answer to that is it just has to make a difference. So as we ended last time, and I told you this was going to be a long introduction, uh, we basically asked two questions. What are the rewards going to be? And how are we going to be evaluated for our faithfulness? Isn't that what we would want to know? And that's how we ended last time. So that leads us into our plan for today. And our plan for today is twofold. Number one, we're going to look at the nature of our rewards. What will they be? And then the second thing we're going to begin to look at this week is the nature of our evaluation. What is involved if we're going to have an evaluation by the Savior, what's involved in that? So that's our plan, the nature of our rewards and the nature of our evaluation. So let's look, first of all, at the nature of our rewards. What are they going to be? And here's the first element of that. The first part of what our reward is going to be is praise and honor from Jesus. I want you to turn back to that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. Remember where it, it talks about how one thing is required of a steward, and that is that the steward would be found faithful. And just a few verses down from that, I want you to notice what it says in verse 5. 
It says, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring both to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. He's writing to believers here. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. That's part of the reward. Praise and honor from Jesus. Now, some of you might be sitting there. I don't know if you would respond this way, but some of you might be thinking, well, yeah, big deal. And my answer to that would be, yeah, big deal. Big deal. I want everybody to close your eyes for just a moment. I want you to just close your eyes, and I want you to think about for a moment the person on this planet that you admire the most. Think about the person on this planet that you admire the most. And while you're still just thinking about that, I want to ask you this question. How much do you value affirmation from that person? You know, many of you know uh, my dad um, died a number of years ago, and uh, my dad was part of the World War II generation, not real expressive, and um, never once did I ever hear my father say, I love you. Only two times that I can remember did I ever hear my dad say to me, I'm proud of you. And I want you to know that's pretty motivational to me to hear that from my father. And you know what? I believe that God made us men and women to be motivated by praise. He made us that way. I can't tell you what it would mean to me if somehow my father could step down from heaven and just say to me, Bruce, you've done a good job. You've been a, a good husband, and you've been a good father, and I'm really proud of the way that you've hung in there, you know, in the ministry for near, nearly 30 years. I can't even tell you what that would mean to me. It'd be so motivational. You know, if my wife or my kids want to say to me, Bruce, Dad, man, we're really proud of you. We're proud of what you do and the way that you do it. I'm telling you, that's motivational to me. I care a lot about that. What the people at Wildwood think means the world to me because I love you so much. And when you say things to me and you say you're doing a good job and I'm proud of the way that you're accomplishing this and that and you give praise to me, it's motivational. You know, the weeks when I'm locked over there in that study and I'm working through all of this material and I have these deadlines every week and sure, there's weeks I think, what in the world am I doing this for? But when I hear from you, oh, that's motivational to me. 
For a number of years, I've had the privilege of working with Family Life, and we do these marriage conferences. And uh, I admire Dennis Rainey, who's the president of Family Life, a lot. And I just can't tell you what it would mean to me if someday Dennis took me aside and he said, Bruce, man, I'm glad you're on this team. And you're doing a great job out there. You share the message of God's plan for marriage with couples all around the country. Oh, oh that means something to me. If I could guarantee that could happen this afternoon by just some arrangement I could make. I'd do everything I could. Because you see, what happens is there's deep joy that comes from the expression of praise from someone that we admire. And it makes all the struggle, all the sacrifice, all the labor worth it. And part of the reward that we're gonna get is praise and honor from Jesus. Can you imagine, can you just imagine with me for a minute, the first time you had the opportunity to look into the Savior's eyes, the very first time, and he just looked at you and he said, well done. Good job. Not perfect job, because none of us have done that, but if he said, good job. I like the way you lived your life after you came to know me. Thanks, Bruce, for honoring me. Thanks. How much would you value that affirmation? from Jesus Christ. See, that's gonna be part of the reward. And we need to understand that now because it's motivational now. It's what influences the kind of choices that we make. But that's just part of it. We talk about the nature of rewards. The first part of it is praise and honor from Jesus. The second part of it is ruling in the future. Ruling in the future. And don't underestimate this one. Do you know that we were created to rule? We were created, men and women, to rule. God made us that way. I want to look at some passages on that. We're going to see it in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. You see, this is part of the creation. Verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Verse 26. Let them, it's talking about the male and the female, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 28, God blessed them. God said to them, the male and the female, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it. And again, all of these various elements are listed. We were created to rule. That's part of the way God made us. And you go right into the middle of your Bible, you don't need to turn there, but in Psalm 8, David, in verses 4 and 6, 
ask the question, what is man, God, that you take thought of him and that you care for him? And he goes on to say, you make him to rule over the works of your hands. We were made to rule. That's the way God designed us to be. And we see that not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. If you'll turn with me to the last book of the Bible, to Revelation chapter 20, we'll see that part of the plan for the millennial kingdom is that we would rule there. If you look at verse 4, it says, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded during the tribulation period because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Do you see it? It's not just Christ reigning, but we also would be reigning and ruling with him. In fact, even after the millennial kingdom, you come to the last couple of chapters and we move into really eternity future. And in chapter 22, verse five, by the way, the they here are the bondservants who serve the Lamb. We see that in verse 3. But notice in verse 5 it says, there will no longer be any night, and they will have not need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the word of God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. We, men and women, were created to rule. It's been God's plan from the very beginning. And I want to I turn in the Gospel of Luke to Luke chapter 19, and I want to look um, a little bit at the parable of the money, or the parable of the minas, or the parable of the pounds, depending upon how your translation may translate it. Um, chapter 19, verses 11 to 27. Have, we don't have time today to um, work our way through this whole parable, but I, I just want to make a few observations about it, okay? We learn from verse 11 that Jesus told this parable because there was an expectation that he would be establishing the kingdom right then. And so he tells the story of the parable. And what you have in verses 13 to 26 is an evaluation of the servants. He called 10 of his slaves and gave them 10 minas, a portion of money, and said to them, do business with this until I come back. And ultimately, if you follow through the parable, he does come back. And he starts to do an evaluation. When he returned, after verse 15, receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves, to whom had been given the money, he called to them so that he might know what business they had done. And what's really interesting is you have an evaluation of the servants in verses 13 to 26, and then you have a judgment of the enemies in verse 27. 
fits right with what we see in the New Testament because the evaluation of the servants, I believe, is a reference to the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, where reward or loss of reward is involved. And then you have the judgment of the enemies that occurs in verse 27, which is the great white throne judgment. But here's what I want you to see from this section. Verse 13, he calls the ten slaves together. He gives them certain money, a picture of, I think, resources, and here's what he says to them, do business until I come back. And that's really what we are called to do, to do God's business until he comes back. And then in verse 15, he comes back and he says to them, I want to know what business you have done. And the first one said, well, I I took what you gave to me, and I've made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be in authority over ten cities. You are to rule ten cities worth. And the second one came saying, your mina master has made five minas. And he said to him also, you are to be over five cities. All I'm trying to point out here is simply that principle is there. Part of a reward is ruling in the future. I don't know where we get this idea that heaven is going to be some, we're laying around for eternity, bored to death. What are we going to be doing for all that time? Well, part of what God desired for us is that we would be ruling. What a great privilege it would be to rule in eternity and in the millennial kingdom. What a great position to have of leading and influencing people for the glory of God. So when we just try to get an idea of this, of what is the nature of the rewards, the first part of that is praise and honor from Jesus. The second part of that is ruling in the future. And the third part of that is treasure in heaven. That's the third part of reward as I see it laid out for us in the New Testament and you know the passage on that the classic passage from Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus talks about this and he says to the disciples don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal And then he adds a little phrase, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus has a very pro-investment mentality. And he says, basically you could translate this in these verses, stop and start. That's just what the Greek indicates. Stop storing up for yourselves treasures and earth, but start storing up for yourselves treasures and earth in heaven. You see, treasure is is never communicated in the Bible as something that is to be rejected. Rather, it's actually communicated as something to be pursued by me and by you. It's just that it needs to be the right kind of treasure. And you say to me, well, what is this treasure in heaven? And I want to tell you something. I don't really know. I really don't know exactly what that means. (laughs) 
But I do know something about it. I know this, it's going to be grander than you could ever imagine. I know that. I know that for a fact. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 says, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard. It hasn't even entered into the imagination of the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. That's all I know. There's going to be the potential of treasure in heaven, and all I know is it's going to be grander than, than even you can imagine, and I can imagine. Have you ever had this experience, you know, in life, where you're having some sort of an experience, and you say to yourself, oh, I wish this wouldn't end. I wish I could enjoy this forever. And in heaven, it won't end. And in heaven, you can enjoy it forever. That's awesome to think about. Awesome to think about. As we said, we were going to really try to do two things today. First of all, we want to look at the nature of our rewards, and I wanted to give you a feeling for that. But also, we wanted to look at the nature of our evaluation. I mean, what is involved in this? How are we going to be evaluated for faithfulness? And we, men and women, only have time to look at one part of that. But as I promise to you, this will be encouraging. How are we going to be evaluated for faithfulness? Well, I believe the Bible teaches us that we are going to be evaluated for how faithful we are in the face of difficulty. How faithful we are in the face of difficulty. And there's two dimensions to that. Difficulty might be injustice and mistreatment. Injustice and mistreatment. Look at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Jesus talked about this. He said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Faithfulness in the face of difficulty when it involves injustice and mistreatment, God says reward for that. Look at the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke in chapter number 6. Luke chapter number 6. When we are faithful in the face of difficulty, if it involves injustice and mistreatment, there will be reward. Luke 6, verse 27, I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Then notice verse 35, love your enemies, do good, lend expecting nothing in return. And what does it say there? and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for even he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. 
And so, when we are faithful in the face of difficulty, when it involves injustice and mistreatment, God says there'll be reward for that. And maybe you've experienced that some. Maybe you have been ostracized, you know, because of your stand for Jesus Christ, you're not really in the in-group. God takes note of that. Maybe you're a teenager, you know, and you've chosen that, well, when it comes to the sexual arena of life, I want to be pure. Uh, I want to I go to my wedding day as a virgin, and maybe you've been ridiculed for that. People have laughed. When you are faithful in the face of injustice and mistreatment, there is reward. Maybe you have been uh, bypassed for a job or a promotion because you wouldn't do unethical things or illegal things. That's happened to people in this church, by the way. I know it. Probably it's happened to more than I even know about. Well, when we are faithful in the face of difficulty, if it involves injustice and mistreatment, God says there'll be reward for that. And what about the people today? We know they're all around the, the world. We don't really experience it in America, but we're under incredible persecution. And I've told stories about some of what happened to people who named the name of Jesus Christ during the Soviet era. God says, when you're faithful in the face of difficulty and involves injustice and mistreatment, reward for that. Reward for that. Faithful in the face of difficulty, it might involve injustice and mistreatment, and it also, though, I think might involve trial and adversity. Trial and adversity. Look at James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Hiding behind Hebrews, James chapter 1. James writes and he says there in verse 12, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. You persevere, remain faithful under trial and adversity. God says reward for that. Reward for that. Um, Revelation chapter 2, the second chapter of the Revelation in some of the letters to the churches. I just want you to notice verse 10 there. And this is Jesus speaking to these believers. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. I mean, they were going to suffer some things. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will reward you. I will give you the crown of life. Now, men and women, I think that is encouragement. Don't you find that encouraging? Isn't that motivating? It's got to be encouraging for someone who has to face leukemia or Parkinson's disease in themselves or in their family. I think it would be encouraging to a mom who had the burden of a child who had cerebral palsy or severe autism. I think it would be encouraging 
to a man who had to care for his wife while she suffered from Alzheimer's or maybe went through a battle with cancer? It's got to be encouraging for someone who has continued to trust God despite the fact that they have a severe handicap in their life. I think it would be encouraging to a youth who would choose to follow Christ despite the fact that they've had very poor parental modeling in their life. Faithfulness in the face of difficulty. It's encouraging if you experienced incredible childhood trauma in your life. It's encouraging if you've been going through custody issues with an ornery ex-spouse. Faithfulness in the face of difficulty. It's encouraging if you've had to live with pain or you lost a child. James says, persevere and you will receive. Revelation says, be faithful and I will give to you. My personal opinion, this is amazing truth, men and women, that has been too long unappreciated in the Christian community. This is amazing stuff. What a privilege it is for me to open this up before you. Now, we said we were only going to cover part of that. We, we, that's, again, not why I have a three-part series. You're going to have to come back. There's more. You have to come back next week. But I do want to talk about some life response we can have as we move away from what we've looked at this morning. And the life response is going to involve some life response for followers of Christ and some life response for those who aren't followers of Christ. So first of all, I want to talk about some life response for those who are followers of Christ, and that is don't lose heart. You may be facing injustice, you may be facing adversity, but what God wants to say to you is don't lose heart. And I want you to look at Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9. Don't lose heart if you're a follower of Christ. And by the way, Galatians 6, 9 comes in a context where he's talking about sowing and reaping and making certain choices in our life. And he says in verse 9, let us as believers, followers of Christ, not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Don't lose heart. Sometimes we want to give up. I've had about enough of this. I keep trying to honor the Lord through all of it. And what God is saying is don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. You will reap reward if you remain faithful in the face of difficulty. So that's the first life response for those who are followers of Christ. For those who aren't followers of Christ, the life response I would just share with you is don't miss Christ. <laughs> don't miss Christ. You know, at the great white throne judgment, every, people from every country are going to be there. People from every religion, Protestants, Catholics, 
Muslims, Buddhists, and Hindu folks are going to be there. Every people group is going to be represented, white, black, and brown. And what that demonstrates to us there is that here's the issue. Either Christ is going to bear your punishment that you deserve and I deserve for our guilt and sin, or we're going to bear our own. And everyone at the great white throne is going to be bearing that, but it's not necessary. If you don't know Christ personally, it's not necessary. Listen to what the Bible says in John chapter 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. You are forgiven. Your destiny in heaven is assured. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. We don't want anybody to be there. The invitation is open. You can move from having a reservation at the great white throne to having a reservation at the judgment seat of Christ by trusting in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for all this truth. It's such incredible stuff. And Father, I want to pray especially today for anybody who hears my voice who does not know Jesus Christ personally, does not know you as the rescuer from sin and judgment. May they realize that the work has been done, the opportunity is there, and all they need to do is to make a life choice to turn to the person of Christ and say, that's what I want to count on, what Christ did for me. That's what I want to be my turning point in my eternal destiny. He who believes in the Son, who trusts in that and rests in who Christ is and what he's done, has eternal life. May all Make that choice by faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.